Now let's uh, hear the word of God again, and uh, from the prophecy of Isaiah this time, and chapter 57 of the prophecy. Isaiah chapter 57. And let's read from verse 10. Isaiah 57 at verse 10. You are wearied in the length of your way, yet you did not say there is no hope. You have found the life of your hand, therefore you are not grieved. And of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me, nor taken it to heart? Is it not because I have held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your works, for they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry them all away. A breath will take them. But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And one shall say, Heap it up, heap it up, prepare the way, take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would fail before me and the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry. And he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will also lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And uh, with the Lord's help, let's look particularly in the light of the wider passage at verse 19, where God says, I create the fruit of the lips, peace, peace, to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near. Now this is obviously a proclamation of peace by God. 
We've looked over the last few weeks now and again at peace, so I don't want to linger too much on it. But I just want to say that uh, we should note right at the beginning that the peace that God speaks of here is his own peace. He's offering it, the peace of God. That's a peace which we can experience through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, After all, there is no other peace really except the peace of God. Any other peace is a temporary peace in terms of time, and it's a false peace in terms of genuineness. The only true peace is God's peace, and the only way to find it is to find it through faith in Jesus Christ. As Christ himself said, my peace I give unto you. These are wonderful words. My peace I give unto you. Now, these words don't just mean that Christ gives the peace or that the peace is his to give. Although both these things are true, Christ is the giver of God's peace and he has the authority to give that peace. But when he says, my peace I give to you, he means by that that it is his own peace that he actually gives. The unique peace that Christ himself has, but is willing and able to share with all his people. And when we experience it, shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, we know it to be so. We know it to be God's peace because, well, as Paul puts it, it's the peace that surpasses all understanding, all human understanding. It's not of this world, and we know it to be not of this world. We recognize it as a heavenly gift, the peace of God himself. Now, I suppose in some ways you may wonder what it means for us to have the very peace that Christ himself has. But if you think of Christ, or indeed of the Trinity, the peace of God rises out of the delight and satisfaction that he has in his own sovereign blessedness. Because of his perfections, he is filled with peace. He is not troubled in the way that we think of. And uh, that's what happens when we partake of his peace too. Uh, We are in him and we too rest in his absolute sovereignty and in his perfect blessedness. And so we are not troubled by anything that is changeable, anything that is temporary. We trust an absolute sovereign who is perfectly blessed and in whom we are blessed too. And the only way, as I said, to have that peace is to have it through faith in Christ. Hence, when he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavily burdened. Now, these are people who aren't resting. We'll see in a moment uh, what they're really like. And I will give you rest, which is the same as peace. The troubled sea, we're told, the wicked cannot rest. But those who are in Christ, they have rest and peace. And of course, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's the nature of this peace. And like I say, because of some things that we looked at in the past, I don't want to linger any longer on that than just what we saw there. But what I'd like to look at with God's help is the peace of God as we find it in this chapter. Um, 
And I want to look at it as a peace offered, a peace accepted, and a peace rejected. So we've seen that the peace is God's peace. It is the peace that God gives through Christ. Let's look at this peace offered to us. Let's look at it accepted. And let's look at it rejected. Now, first of all, let's look at God's peace offered. In verse 19 in our text, I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far off. And to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Now, clearly, God's peace is being offered here. And uh, clearly as well, it's being offered officially by preachers of God's word. In other words, people who are appointed to speak in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are speaking with their lips. And we're told that God here creates the fruit of their lips. Now, the ambassador's lips or the lips of the preacher are no more worthy in themselves than anyone else's lips. And in fact, when God calls someone to proclaim the gospel, they become very conscious of the uncleanness and the unworthiness of their own lips. When Isaiah, this prophet himself, when he was called to the ministry, and you find an account of that in chapter 6. You'll remember that he says, woe is me. Now, it's no surprise that he said that when he saw the glory of Christ, as he did. You'll remember in the chapter he saw him high and lifted up with the very hem of his garment, filling the temple with its glory. Woe is me, he says. But he focuses on his lips because he's conscious that he's being called to speak. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Who am I to speak? Who am I to speak in God's name? Jeremiah felt exactly the same inadequacy in terms of speaking. But people who have unclean lips by nature are the only kind of people God can send. Uh, God has resolved for reasons best known to himself, not to send angels in proclaiming the gospel. He could have done so. And we can think of some reasons why he did not. But nonetheless, he could have so done. But God sends mere men in the proclamation of the gospel. But you'll notice that he doesn't send them with their lips as they are. That was the case with Isaiah, when he was so conscious of his unclean lips We're told that one of the seraphim, one of the angelic beings, took a coal from the altar, that's the altar of the temple, and he touched the prophet's lips. And when the coal touched his lips, not only did Isaiah have a deep sense of his sins forgiven, because God said that, along with the touch of the coal, he said, your sins, your iniquity is taken away, it is healed, it is purged. He also gives him the authority to speak. His lips are purged, they are purified, an authority to speak in the name of God. That's why in our text here in verse 19, God emphasizes this. I create the fruit of the lips. I create it. And this is what the fruit of the lips says. Peace 
to him who is far off and to him who is near. I created. The word create here is the Hebrew word that's used for creating something from nothing. And that reminds us that the gospel really is quite a miraculous thing. The message, of course, itself is miraculous. The fruit of the lips, the gospel message that comes from the lips of the preacher is a miraculous thing. No one could have devised the gospel. No one could have dreamt it. We're told by the apostle himself, the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, that it comes from the very depths of God himself. That it comes from the depths of his heart, as it were. How to reconcile sinners to himself by the giving of his own pure and holy infinite son. In so doing, he could atone for sin and reconcile sinners for himself. So he creates a gospel message, as it were, from nothing. And what's more, God doesn't just create the message. He creates the messenger too. He gives him the very words that he is to speak to his own time to his own generation, and to his own people, clothing the spiritual thoughts of the gospel with the spiritual words that God himself gives. I create the fruit of the lips, proclaiming peace, peace to the one who is far off and to the one who is near. And I think it's worth noting here, it's not a small thing, but this proclamation of peace that the gospel messenger proclaims is an urgent and passionate proclamation. That's why you have the repetition of the word peace. It could have said, I create the fruit of the lips, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near. But it doesn't say that. It says, peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near. Now, Repetition in the Bible, and I suppose it's through amongst ourselves too in our languages, but in the Bible, repetition represents deep feeling. It represents passion. When David was mourning Absalom, his son, my son, my son, O Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. And of course, when our Savior wept over Jerusalem. It wasn't enough to say, O Jerusalem, but O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The passion, the urgency, and the zeal. And clearly, the messengers here, who have the fruit of the gospel created on their lips, carry the same passion. Peace, peace, they proclaim to the person far away and to the person who is near. Now, this passion or this zeal rises from the preacher's heart because it reflects the Lord's own seal and the Lord's own passionate desire for the salvation of lost sinners. How can we forget that? That's how Paul puts it when he's writing the second letter to the Corinthians, where he is appealing with people to be reconciled to God. In these famous words, now then, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ as Though God were pleading through us, he says, we implore you, listen to this, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. In other words, we implore you because Christ is imploring you. If Christ were here 
he is saying he would implore you. But in the absence of Christ physically, we are here spiritually as his ambassadors and in his name and with his temper and with his zeal and with his desire, we plead with you to be reconciled to God. That's why, friends, a preacher without passion is not really a preacher at all. He's just a lecturer. No one wants lectures or essays in the pulpit. What we need is the voice of the heart. It's not the desk that God calls his ambassadors to, but the pulpit, a proclamation with warmth and with urgency. And a lack of passion is not good in someone proclaiming the word of God. Does his own soul feel what the soul of Christ feels? If the Lord longs to bring peace to needy sinners, does the preacher long to bring peace to needy sinners? Now you'll see this urgency coming too, through even in the chapter itself here. Um, I'll come to verses 10 and 13 in a minute and people who are going down the wrong path in life. But in, in verse 14, there's a sudden transition where someone shouts, heap it up, heap it up and prepare the way. Now, <clears throat> it's not easy, right enough, to see immediately the significance of that. But periodically throughout Isaiah's prophecy, there's a reference to a way being prepared from the islands and the coastlands and the places that are far off a way is being prepared. It's called the highway of holiness in Isaiah 35, a road. And this is the message here to build up this causeway, to build up this road and to take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. Because in verse 15, God has this to say, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite for I will not contend forever. I will not always be angry, for the spirits would fail before me and the souls which I have made. So there is a passion there to make a highway and to proclaim that highway, who is Christ, the way and the truth and the life. So then we can say that in our text, verse 19, peace is being offered. It's God's peace. It's offered by his own sent messengers, and it's offered with God's own urgency. And I want you to notice, too, that it's offered to absolutely everybody. Of course, we're familiar with that in the New Testament, where Christ commissions the original apostles to preach the gospel to every creature. Every creature. Here, it's put this way. In verse 19, I create the fruit of the lips, peace, peace, to him who is far off and to him who is near. <clears throat> now that uh, can be taken two ways, but they're both in essence saying exactly the same thing. First of all, the person who is far off can be considered the Gentile, and the person who is near can be considered the Jew. So the person who has little or few privileges and the person who is in the midst of many privileges, both need to hear the same message of peace. Paul, of course, argues that in the early chapters of the letter to the Romans. He 
he warns the Jew against making their boast. In spite of the fact, he says, that there are many advantages to being a Jew. What, what does it profit being a Jew? Well, to them, he says, were committed the oracles of God and the priesthood and so on. There were many advantages to being a Jew. But he says, at the same time, God has concluded both Jew and Gentile to be under God's wrath and curse. There is no difference, he says. And when he says there is no difference, he means between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned, both Jew and Gentile, and come short of the glory of God. So being far off here means being less privileged, and being near means being greatly privileged. So the reference is Jew and Gentile. And in the passage that we read there from Ephesians 2, you'll remember that Paul spoke of the Gentiles as aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. But then he said, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This new sacrifice has opened up a new and living way extending to, through the whole world. And then in verse 17, he says, and this is in Ephesians, you don't need to turn it up at the moment, but after saying that they have been brought near by the blood of Christ, he then says, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who are near. Now, those words are so like the words of our text, which I hope you have opened before you. They're so like the words of our text that I can't help but think that Paul had these very words in mind when he was writing. The Apostle Paul, like uh, all the apostles, and like every minister of the gospel, should have their minds saturated with the word of God. And when he was speaking of Jew and Gentile being brought together around the one sacrifice and reconciled through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's no surprise that his mind goes to this ancient promise in Isaiah, 800 years previously, peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near. But being near and far off it can also mean something else. It can mean not just where we stand in respect of privileges and opportunities. It can mean where we simply stand spiritually. Are we actually near to the kingdom of God or are we far away from it? In other words, to tie that in with what I said a minute ago, it's possible to be spiritually near to the kingdom, although you have little privilege. And it's possible to be far away from the kingdom, though you have many, many privileges. You'll remember the lawyer that Christ was speaking to, who, who had a grasp of the spirituality of God's law. When Christ said that the law of God could be summarized in loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind and loving your neighbor as yourself, the lawyer said to him that you have well said. He said to him, um, these, these go to the heart of what the law is about. That is indeed what the word of God is all about. It is about loving the Lord with all your heart and soul and strength and mind and loving your neighbor as yourself. You'll remember what the Lord said to him. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, 
Now, when Christ said that to him, he wasn't telling him he was a Jew. That was obvious. That was obvious to the lawyer himself, obvious to Christ, and obvious to everybody else. What he meant was that spiritually, he was not far from the kingdom of God. He, he was nearly in. Now, there are some people who say that you can't be, uh, that you're either in or out. Well, that is indeed true. You can indeed only be in or out. But according to the words of Christ here, you can be close or far away. And I wonder if that describes any of yourselves in the hearing or someone in your home or someone you know. Are you nearly in the kingdom of God? Have you got some insight and understanding like this lawyer had of the gospel? And is there something about the way you live your life and the way you speak that indicates that you're near or nearly there, but you're not there yet? And of course, if you're not careful, you might never be at all. But for now, you are near to the kingdom. On the other hand, there are people who are very far away. But you'll notice that the proclamation of peace is going to reach them too. Peace, peace an urgent message to him who is far off and to him who is near. And who's far away here? Well, people who have just gone far away from God. Either backsliders uh, from the true faith or else people who have just backslidden from all their gospel privileges. You can speak of a backslider in that way too. You can speak of someone who, who is far forward in privilege, in a home where they're prayed for and nurtured in the things of the gospel but they backslide away from that that doesn't mean that they were ever in the faith but they've slidden back from where they were they have chosen to be in places of open sin rather in places than in places where the gospel was around them now if you look in the passage and this is why i want to just confine us to the passage you'll notice how poor the condition of some of these people are and uh, one thing, if you just turn back to chapter, sorry, to uh, verse 10 here, just stay in the same chapter, but just look back in your Bibles to verse 10. I'll, I'll read it with you in a second. What, what I want to highlight from it with you before we even begin reading, is not just how uh, sinful and rebellious these people are, but how weary they are in the middle of their rebellion. Now, that's a thing that's often easily overlooked to you. You tend to perhaps think that these people who have openly rejected God are, are finding a great life when they've rejected God. But what's being highlighted in this passage is that they're not having a great life at all. It, it's far from it. There, there's something lacking in their lives that actually makes them weary. Look at verse 10. This is Isaiah speaking to these people who are far off. Now look what he says. And they're far off because they've wandered away from God to other things for their satisfaction. So he says to them in verse 10, you are wearied in the length of your way. That's the length to which they've gone to get away from God. He says, you're wearied in the process. Yet you did not say there is no hope. In other words, although you're tiring of your sinful, rebellious life, it hasn't brought you to the place where you say there's no hope here. You're still trying to find 
some kind of satisfaction and fulfillment in your godless, rebellious life. He goes on to say, you have found the life of your hand, therefore you are not grieved. What he means by that, I know it's a bit of a difficult saying, the life of your hand, but what the life of your hand here means is what your hand wanted to do. You have found uh, the course that you want to walk in. You've found the kind of life that you want to live. Therefore, you are not grieved. In other words, if you had any sense, you would have repented. If you had any sense, you would have grieved for your condition and turned around. But no, you're determined, in spite of your weariness, to still find your satisfaction in the way that you're growing, in the way that you're going. And in verse 11, God says, effectively, why? Of whom have you been afraid or feared that you lied and not remembered me nor taken it to your heart? He says, who is it that has exerted such an influence over you? In your childhood, you feared me and you thought about me and respected me. But now you respect others. Others have a hold of you. Others make you fear them. And he says, you don't fear me because I've held my peace. In other words, I've been silent. I, I haven't rebuked you greatly. I've been reluctant to smite you. But has that given you a further reason not to fear me? Is that the way it works? Because I've been silent, you've lost your fear of me. But in verse 12, God says, you may still think that you're somehow righteous in your godless life. You may believe yourself to be righteous and your works to be good. And that's what you'll say. You say, well, I don't need that God that I had. I don't need religion, but I'll declare you righteousness. I'll declare what you really like. And I'll declare how worthless that righteousness is. I'll declare your works because he says they will not profit you. And furthermore, he says in verse 13, when your trouble really comes, he says, well, let your collection of idols deliver you. The collection of idols, I think, there refers to just the things that he had set his heart on. If you just quickly glance down to verse 17, you'll notice that God says, for the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry and I struck him. That's the collection of idols. That's the things that he gave away the fear of God for. But listen in verse 13 to what God actually says about these things. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But he says, the wind will carry them all away and a breath will take them. We've seen that with the coronavirus, have we not? What did God do? I, I mentioned a few weeks, I, I didn't have, a few weeks ago, I didn't have this text in mind at the time, but I mentioned that all God has done is just breathed at the idols, breathed at them, and taken the collection of idols away. But, but are people just going to come out of this and look for them all over again? Are they still going to the haunts and the houses of pleasure and amusement and entertaining and gambling and pornography and every other thing? Is that what they're going back to? But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now, <clears throat> who are these people that God is describing here, or the prophet? Well, they are the people who have gone afar off. 
They might have been near, but they've gone afar off. These are what we would call the prodigals, and sadly many of us might have them in our families. Like the very prodigal himself in Luke 15, who went to a far country. Do these words not again intentionally recall these kinds of words? Him who is far off and him who is near. He went to a far country and God sent a famine. But we're told that he still didn't come home. God sent him to feed with the swine, which should have been degrading to a proud Jew. But no, he still didn't come home. But the gospel is offered to these people. The gospel is offered. And that takes me second, and uh, I've spent more time on peace being offered, so I won't be as long on the other two. Takes me second to peace being accepted. Peace accepted. See, the wonderful thing is that God says in verse 16, I will not contend forever. I will not always be angry, for the spirit would fail before me and the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry, and he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways, and what? You would expect, I have destroyed him. But no, suddenly he says, I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. How was this peace accepted? Well, of course, in connection with the prodigal, the Lord tells us in that matchless parable that the prodigal came to himself. Wasn't the famine, wasn't the swine. Sure, God used all these things, but none of these things took him until he came to himself. That's what happened to him, you could say, on the human side. Looking at him just as a man and looking at the workings of his heart and the workings of his mind and the thoughts of his conscience. He just came to himself. But that is on the human side. In our passage, the focus is on God's side. It's on God's side. And again, if you just look there at verse 17, this is it on God's side. For the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry, and he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and will heal him. No, that is what John Newton would have called amazing grace. Is it not? In other words, the, the reason why God heals him here is just because he does. It's just because he does. God gives the heart to the prodigal to turn. And God delights in doing that and that's why we pray that God does that. It would never happen to a sinner left on his own. I mean, that prodigal would never, ever have come to himself, never, ever come to himself, had the Spirit of the Lord not worked in his heart to come to himself. In that passage, of course, we do see the human side of it. Significantly, in the two parables that precede it, the parable of the lost coin and the parable of the lost sheep, we see God taking the initiative. It's God that goes after the sheep. And it's God, the Holy Spirit, that finds the lost coin. And the lost son, it is the son that comes to himself. But the passage here, too, is emphasizing the fact that the motion, the motion comes from God. 
I create the fruit of the lips. Peace to the one who is far off. And of course, the prodigal is broken. Broken in his heart. And uh, that's what the, the, the Spirit of God produces. He breaks our pride. He breaks our heart. He breaks everything except our resolution to be healed. In verse 15, notice how, the, how the, these words come into the passage. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. With him was a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. But how do you get like that? You get like that because God breaks you. That's why. And in breaking you, he makes you. Not a bad thing to be broken. There is a bad kind of breaking, but there's a good kind of breaking. And it needs to take place before you can be healed. And the result, of course, is that this poor prodigal or this poor person is afar off is actually healed. If you look at verse 18 there, there's a, there's a wonderful expression here. I have seen his ways, God says, his, his covetous ways and his, his far off ways, and I will heal him. I will also lead him, he says, and restore comforts to him, proper comforts. Comforts he probably had when he was a youth, maybe. When he was looking to God, I'll restore real comfort to him and to his mourners. Now, uh, who are they? Who are they? Well, I've thought about this for a, a good while, and I can only think that his mourners are those who were mourning for him when he was in, in the far country. Th those who knew the Lord. And those who had the peace of God, but the peace of God was being disturbed by the mourning that they had for this person in the far country. And God says, I'll restore his comforts and I'll restore comforts to his mourners too. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Um, in our prayers for these people who are afar off and when we try and speak peace to them and when as ministers we try and preach peace to them, we can't but mourn for them. And it's a wonderful thought that when they return, not only are they healed, but of course we are healed too. He takes away the spirit of heaviness and gives us the garment for joy. Now, while I'm saying that, um, it is important to strive to keep your peace, even in the midst of your mourning. These two things may seem mutually exclusive, and it's, it's not really for me just now to enter into it more fully, but remember where your peace arises and keep it even in the midst of your mourning. So this is looking at it from God's side. God heals. God breaks that spirit of bondage, and God's message of peace reaches you in the far country and brings you to the peace of God. Like I said, from your side, the initiative must simply rise in your soul. I've had enough of the husks, enough of the swine, enough of the famine. I've had enough of the far country. I've been disillusioned by it with its riotous living, with its promises. I will arise and I will go to my father. You must say that. If you hear the message of peace, 
calling you to your father's house, I will arise and I will go to my father. And you will then know the peace of God. So that's God's peace. Um, Sorry, I've forgotten the the first thing. God's peace um, proclaimed and God's peace accepted. Now, last of all, we've got God's peace rejected. And it's sad that we have to read this, but here it is, and God says it, and God is faithful, and I must say it, and we must all hear it. Verse 20, the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. There is no peace for the wicked. Now, in light of what we've said, the meaning of this is not that peace isn't offered to the wicked. It obviously is. It's offered to all kinds of people near and far away. What this verse means is that if you reject the peace, there is no other peace for you. If you choose wickedness, and if you choose to pursue the life of your hand, then there is no peace for you. Stands to reason. If the only source of peace is God, and if you reject the peace that God is offering you, well, where else are you going to find it? You might find some kind of pleasure for some kind of time. The pleasures, the passing pleasures of sin for a season, but you'll find no peace. In fact, you will increasingly be like the troubled sea when or which cannot rest. I think it is better to translate that, which cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. The sea is full of all kinds of things at its bottom. And because of its own inward motion, these things are constantly being cast up into its froth and foam. And I suppose even now, when you're trying to find, like I said, the life of your hand, I would wager, if I wagered, that you've got no peace uh, but trouble. And I'd wager, too, that your trouble is increasing. And as you look into the future, there's only trouble there, too. In fact, the, the trouble that awaits you is a trouble that you can't really envisage now. In Revelation 14, there are two groups of people. Uh, the, the first group in verse 13 is the group who have died in the Lord. We're told they are blessed. Blessed are the dead, those who have died in the Lord. What do they enjoy? Well, we're told that they enjoy rest, that they rest from their labors and their works do follow them. In other words, the, <clears throat> the good that they did in this world will go with them into glory. It'll follow them there. Um, It's a kind of poetic figure of these works waiting to appear at the judgment seat uh, when we've gone there too. Our works follow us as Christians. But these people, they've died in the Lord. You see, they died in faith. They returned. They repented. They heard the message of peace. And therefore, they rest from their labors. They've gone to their rest. They've gone to their peace. And their works do follow them. In the same chapter, there's a second group. 
These aren't the ones who died in the Lord. We're told that they were the ones who opposed the lamb and who followed the beast. That's the anti-Christian system in every form of its manifestation, both in the church and in the world. We're told about them that the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Now, we can't help notice the contrast. We can't help notice the contrast. One group rests, and the other group have no rest day or night. Like the man in the parable who asked Abraham to send Lazarus because he said, I am tormented in this flame. No rest for his soul day or night. Well then, friends, uh, tonight again, and in the name and by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, I proclaim peace, peace to you, whether you are near the kingdom or far away. And even tonight, the question simply arises, will you accept that message of peace, like the prodigal, or will you reject it? Will you know the peace of God in your heart, or are you destined eternally to be like the troubled sea, which cannot rest forever, casting up mire and dirt? May the Lord bless our um, meditation on his own word. Let's close by singing in Psalm 37 to God's praise. Psalm 37. And verse 23, page 254. Psalm 37 and verse 23. We're singing to the tune Saint Anne. A good man's footsteps... By the Lord are ordered aright, and in the way wherein he walks he greatly doth delight. Although he fall, yet shall he not be cast down utterly, because the Lord with his own mighty hand upholds him mightily. Then move on to verse 35. Verse 35, I saw the wicked, great in power, spread like a green bay tree. He passed, yea, was not. They come and go. Him I sought, but found he could not be. Mark thou the perfect, and behold the man of uprightness, because that surely of this man the latter end is peace. But those men that transgressors are shall be destroyed together. The latter end of wicked men shall be cut off forever. So let's sing 23 and 24, and then 35 to 38. Ah, good man's pay.